0: Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This episode is about forensic anthropology. Please be aware that due to the nature of the topic, this talk includes discussions of violence, child sexual abuse, death by suicide, and mass fatality events, which some listeners may find disturbing. This month, we hear from Sue Black, a forensic anthropologist who has led teams across the world to identify the victims and perpetrators of various conflicts and cases. Sue shares examples of her breakthrough work on real-life events, And examines how our life's history is written into our anatomy. The talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 22nd of February 2019. If you'd like to register for upcoming talks, head over to rigb.org to see what's on.
1: It is very unusual to have to start a discussion with a warning. And it's important that there is a warning, because this presentation might be a little bit disturbing for some. I promise you that there's nothing that you haven't already seen on the news, but I'm not sure in your mind what it is you've come to hear, and I need to be sure that what I'm going to say will match at least what you're going to hear, and at least you're prepared for some of the things that you might see that are quite challenging. But not only what you see is challenging, but the concepts of what I want to talk about can be a little bit challenging as well. I don't know if you've read the book, The Death Ship, but there's some really interesting pieces written within those words. And what it's about to say is a saying, Who are you? Show me some proof of who you are. And the man's saying, I don't need to show you, I know who I am. But the point is, not only do you know who you are, other people want to know who you are as well. And there are two very different sides to identity. That feeling of you knowing who you are, and not feeling you have to prove it to anybody else, and to other people who are out there that need to prove that who you say you are is who you have always been. And they will want to know why you say you are who you are and who you have always been. And they will want proof of that as well. And the question is just how certain can we be about that proof? And can they determine our identity without us even being involved? We might, of course, be dead. And as a result, we can't be involved. So our identity has to cross a number of bridges. It has to be able to convince the people that we work with and that we live with, that we are who we say we are. It has to convince our authorities that we have the right person doing the right things. And sometimes along the way it comes to officials who need us to be able to prove it or who want to be able to prove it. Who am I? In terms of a name, well, it gets a little bit confusing. And I want you to think about this in terms of your own name. When I was born, I was Susan Margaret Gunn. I rarely got called Sue. I was always Susan. But as friends got to know me, I became known as Red for obvious reasons as well. But people who called me Red also knew that I was called Susan and Sue. So, that changing the name and having a nickname wasn't really a problem. It does become a problem if nobody knows that the nickname that you currently carry has any relation back to a name that's known. Margaret bit wasn't terribly important. But that surname becomes very important, especially when you're Susan Margaret Gunn, which is SM Gunn, which is submachine then you know what the, what the sort of taunting is that you're going to get when you're in school, especially when you're a redhead as well. And then I carried Gun quite happily as a name for quite some time, Miss Susan Gun. And then I met a man, well I met several men, but I met one man in particular. <laughs> and that man in particular said, I'd like you to lose the Miss and I'd like you to use, lose the gun, and I want you to take Mrs., and I want you to take McLaughlin. And I thought, I'm okay with that, because I rather like this man. And so I have a piece of paper. I have a piece of paper that shows who I was when I was born, but just the name. So I have a piece of paper that says I'm Susan Margaret Gunn. I have a piece of paper that allegedly says who my father is. My grandmother came from Glen Glenelg, which is in the real Highlands of Scotland, and she always said, you always know who your mother is, and you only have your mother's word for who your father might be. (laughs) But on that bit of paper is my father's name, and my mother's name, and my date of birth. And I have another piece of paper then that connects who Susan Gunn was to Susan McLaughlin. That's okay. Well, he was a very nice man for a little while, but as you can expect, I've got another bit of paper that said actually I'm going to lose the McLaughlin bit and then I hit a real problem because up until that point all of my academic career had been with the name McLaughlin what did I do now so when I met the next man that I have continued to spend the rest of my life with and I do tell him he's only the current Mr Black Is that he said, I want you to take the missus, which is absolutely fine. I'd like you to take the black, which is fine. Absolutely did. And I went to the the registrar and I said, what do I put on the bit of paper? Because I don't want McLaughlin to be on my marriage certificate. Should it be gone? And she said, well, what are you known by? I said, well, everybody just knows me as as being with Tom, so everybody would know me as Sue Black. And from the point of my second marriage, Sue Black was born with no paper connection back to who was McLaughlin, or who was Gunn. And it caused me no problems until we tried to do something with a mortgage. <laughs> and then it caused an inordinate amount of problems, and very lucky I could be able to show who I was right the way throughout time. The name is important because what we really attribute our identity to is our name. And when you go into your GP surgery and you're waiting for that name to be called out, when it does, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up because it's your name and you don't think anybody else shares it. Well, they do. So that there are something like 12,500 John Smiths in the UK. A little bit worryingly for me anyway, there are seven Alex Salmons. you know, (laughs) thought there might just be one. So that those names become really core and critical to our identity. But fundamentally, there are very little purpose in being able to prove who we are. When you look at our identity in societal terms, I view myself as being a mother, a wife, a scientist. I view myself as being Scottish. I'm a Gaelic speaker, a very bad Gaelic speaker. I read a lot, I write a lot. These are all things that I would attribute as being a part of my identity. That bit in that death ship that was about me, I know who I am. I don't need to prove who I am. But I'm not a social anthropologist. I'm a physical anthropologist. And I'm also a forensic anthropologist. So my real interest is in the physical determination of the individual and being able to convey that information into a court so that somebody can hopefully be identified. So I am female, I am over 18, and I'm not prepared to say any more than that, but I am over 18. And you can see the characteristics that I might choose to describe myself in terms of my physicality. And if you do that for yourself, you start to actually look at yourself slightly differently. What is my cultural identity? What is my linguistic identity? What is my social identity? What is my physical identity? When... All of my children were born, and I have three girls, and it maybe makes me a somewhat unusual mother. But I have body mapped my children, so that I know where every single birthmark is, up to the point that it was decent for me to see them, naked of course. I have blood samples from them. I have hair samples from them, and I have a full ten set of fingerprints and toe prints. So that, God forbid, if anything ever happened to my children, in terms of identification, I would be right up front with the anti-mortem data and there would be no doubting it. So that the extremes of identity come to people who work within this field. And where we've really, as a species, taken on board identity is the fact that we are the most narcissistic. There are a few species around the world who recognise self, but nobody more so than the human. We invented the mirrors, we look in the mirrors, we care how we look, we care whether we're fat or thin, we care whether our our hair is grey or not, we care about the colour of our eyes. And so we're a species that is very, very geared towards identity and recognising our own identity. But not only externally, and this is where it separates us from all the other animal groups who do think about I recognising self. So, for example, some dolphins will recognise self, some elephants can recognise self, and some of the greater apes can as well. They know in a reflection that it is them that's looking back, not another animal. But we're unique. We're unique because not only do we care and study what happens on the outside of us, we care what happens on the inside as well. So we're the only species that will dissect our own form, to be able to learn and understand what lies underneath the skin. So, in the world of identity, those individuals who have an anatomical background actually perform very well in the field of forensic identification, because we don't only look at the external features of who you are, we can also look at the internal features as well. Identity is an interesting word. It means The same. Not similar. Identical means the same. There is no wiggle room left in here at all. So if it's going to be something that is the same, then we have a very simple law associated with it. We have Aristotle's law of identity. And fundamentally, the first law states that A equals A. Everything, everything, if it's identical, is inseparable from itself. So it's going to be a perfect replication of itself. There's a couple of little qualifications in there when you get into the second law and the third law. And the second law about the law of contradiction is that you can't be the same thing and something different at the same time. And it's at the same time that is the important phrase within there. And the third part, which is the law of the excluded third, is that you have if you are the person then you can't be somebody else. So that when we're looking at identifying someone, there is no third option. It either is the person or it is not the person. And so Aristotle's laws work really well for us because there's no wiggle room, but they're totally and utterly inappropriate in the world of identification. Good old Heraclitus. What he said is, you know, actually that might be fine if we're talking about things that are inanimate objects. But certainly when we're talking about something that is biological, which the human is, we have to have a little bit of wiggle room. We have to be able to have that opportunity to take change into account. So as far as Heraclitus was concerned, it wasn't A equals A anymore, which was Aristotle's really, really rigid law. A equals A star, that little bit of change. One thing I can guarantee is you do not look the same today as you did on the day you were born. And your mothers would all be delighted for that. And may you live till you're 110, but I guarantee when you get to 110, you will not look the same as you do today. So when you are looking at identity in a biological construct, we have to be prepared to allow for change, and we have to take account of change. Based within there, of course, is the Theseus Paradox that says how much change can you afford to have until something is no longer the same individual? There are some cells in your body that you're born with and you will die with and they will never be replaced and they will last you for a lifetime. But every other cell will be replaced. So if you imagine a wily defense barrister in court somewhere who says, 15 years ago, you know, you're you're alleging that my client killed his wife. But in that 15 years, almost every single cell in his body has been replaced. He's no longer the same person that he was 15 years ago. Well, it's not true. The, The lens in the eye doesn't change. The the bone that surrounds a part of the inner ear doesn't change, and your neurons don't change either. So if nothing else, our identity in those three cells, and our our, our teeth as well, the enamel in our teeth, in those four cells will stay with us for the entirety of our lifetime. But everything else about us will change. Even when we look at DNA, although it's it's a very crude mechanism that we use of DNA analysis in the forensic world, There will still be change over time. We will still get alterations. We will still get deletions. There will be changes. It won't remain the same. And at what point does that change get too much? So when you have a series of change and you live with somebody through those changes, then it becomes obvious. But if you look at the early photographs of Michael Jackson and you look at him in the later photographs, and if you didn't know the distance that had occurred between the two, I suspect we would have excluded them on external identity as being one and the same individual. One of the things humans are very bad at is identifying people that they don't know. We're a little bit better at people that we do know, but by and large, we're really not very good at identifying people. So we need the continuity. Did you ever go back to one of your school reunions? And nobody looked the same as they did when they were 15 or 16, but you took their word for it that they were the same person. (laughs) Yeah, And if they had enough background information, they remembered Dr. Fraser in biology, or they remembered you know, the maths teacher, then there was probably enough confirmation in your mind that it probably is them. And if they could come out with memories that you shared, you became more and more comfortable that they might be that person. But of course, that's the basis of most good con artists, is to be able to give you information that you already know and therefore to gain your confidence and to overcome the fact it is an entirely different person. There are things in the body that will change, and there are things that will not change. Those things that we can explain as a logical progression, and those things that we can't. A very unusual hand, where the middle finger and the ring finger are transposed. So, I was giving a lecture called A Pint of Science, and you give a lecture in a bar, which is a wonderful idea. And there was a young lady there who said, Would oh, you like my hand? So, you, know, you photograph the hands. It's a fantastic hand. That's a really unusual developmental anomaly. And it's not going to change. That's going to stay with her right the way throughout her entire life. But things could happen. So, most of us have got five toes. But we could lose a toe. And if we lose the toe, and it's surgically lost, then the chances are there will be pieces of evidence there that will say, okay, this wasn't someone who was born with four toes. This is someone who lost a toe. We would know that from the surgical appearance when we look at the x-rays of the foot. We'd know it from the scar associated with the big toe. So we can accept change in identity, providing there's enough evidence evidence there that there is a logical reason for its change. DNA was the thing that changed the forensic world. And it made us terribly lazy as well. So when the wonderful Alec Jeffries had that eureka moment in his lab where he couldn't get his his results to work, and the reason he couldn't get them to work is because everybody's DNA was different, that changed the forensic world. And your DNA does change over time. It does age But it is an extremely useful piece of information because the genetics are going to come from only two people. As a result, we don't tend to see change within DNA, and it's probably one of the most important factors of identification. But the one that's probably even older than that is that we're all quite happy to say fingerprints are unique. Do you know they're unique? If we had to know they were unique, wouldn't we have to take every single fingerprint that's ever happened anywhere? It becomes probabilistic. And once identification becomes probabilistic, so what is the likelihood of, then we start to get into an area that is grey in the forensic world. And we were quite happy with forensic fingerprinting until the Shirley McKee case came out in Scotland. And Shirley McKee was a police officer. There was a murder in Glasgow, and her fingerprint was found at the crime scene. She was questioned why her fingerprint was at the crime scene, and she said, I was not at the crime scene. And they said, you were, because your fingerprint was there. And she said, I was not. And so she was found um, to... She, she was removed from her job, and they held her in contempt. And then they started to research fingerprints. And they found that the problem isn't about the variation in fingerprints. The problem is about the way in which we record differences in the fingerprints. So the methodology was flawed, not necessarily the variability in the fingerprints. So we'd gone from a position of accepting a set number of similarities as being the individual. Ooh, now you've got a problem. Because if you now need more points to be a match than you used to do in the past, and you've put people in prison in the past for a smaller number of points of match, you're going to have to do a retrial, aren't you? And so when we get things wrong in identity, there are consequences. And probably across these, the most individualistic of them will be DNA, but it doesn't solve everything. And I'm going to take you through a case in a few moments that will show you why it doesn't solve anything. But in the world of forensic identification, we have to work right across the piece. We have to work with individuals who are living. So you have somebody who comes into Heathrow, perhaps on a false passport, and they're picked up and they will automatically tell us they're 17. They might look like they're 104, but they'll tell us they're 17. And the reason is that we sign up to the International Rights of the Child. If somebody claims to be a child, then we must accept them as a child, we must house them, we must educate them, we must look after them. The job is then to say, how old is the individual? So we will work with the living. Some of these these images will now get a little bit more distressing. We will work with those who are recently deceased. So in a mass fatality event, for example, like the London bombing, like the World Trade Centre, where we have bodies that are recently deceased, we will still be involved in identification. But the one thing that we will not do is that we will not compare faces. We don't allow families anymore to walk up and down the lines of the dead trying to find somebody that they recognise. Because we learnt in the Bali bombing that 50% of the individuals who were identified by their face were incorrect. So you have a family who is distressed, trying to find their family member or not wanting to find their family member and walking up and down lines and lines of debt and going, that's my son. If you get it wrong once, you actually get it wrong twice because you've identified the wrong person as being somebody else, which means you've denied the other family, that body being repatriated to them. So it is easier to identify someone who's living. It is probably easier to identify somebody who is recently deceased. And as the body starts to decompose, as we start to lose that barrier between our external environment and our internal environment, we start to lose information. We start to lose fingerprints. We may start to lose some of the integrity of the DNA. We might not get full profiles. We might only get partial profiles. Most forensic anthropologists are thought of as being people who deal with bones. And that is true, in part, but it is a very, very small part of it. And certainly there's a significant amount of information that we can retrieve in identification from bones, but it's less than if we had a decomposed body. It's less than if the individual was recently deceased, and it's less if the individual was living. And when you get down to this, That's the area of expertise in forensic anthropology. We were the kind of kids who got jigsaw puzzles every single year at Christmas because we like to be able to reconstruct these parts of the body. And even from something that is as unpromising potentially as this, we may well be able to reconstruct parts of the human body. So our job is, regardless of what is presented to us in whatever level of decomposition, whether it is an adult or a child, our job is to try to extract something from those parts of the body that will tell us about the identity of the individual. And the longer you live, the more information you lay down in your body. The more you abuse your body, the more information you leave behind for us. I refused to let my daughters go and have braces. I didn't want them to have perfect teeth because they wouldn't be identified if their teeth were perfect. You need to be able to have some variation in there. Let me show you what I mean. This is Migdale Wood. And Migdale Wood, I have to explain where Dornach is. Dornach is about as far in Scotland as you can go before you fall off the end. And a man is out walking his dog. And... About two years before this photograph was taken, a car was found abandoned in a car park in Dornock, and the police checked it out. And what they found out was that it had been bought in an auction house in Shipley under a false name. So quite rightly, they thought, it's just a car that's been abandoned. When the man is walking through the woods, and if I can give you no other piece of advice, it's this, don't have a pet dog. Get a cat, get a budgie, get fish. of all unexpected bodies are found by people walking dogs. (laughs) The dogs smell them. They hunt them out. So a man's walking through Migdale Wood with his dog. And the dog identifies, and I'll point it out to you if I can, identifies a little pile of bones sitting down here. Police Scotland come out. This is in the middle of the middle of nowhere. They've been watching CSI and Silent Witness, and they pop up their crime scene tape, just in case a marauding deer should come through their crime scene or something like that. And as you're standing there with a very young policeman, he looks up the tree and he says, Do you think that's important? And there is only one answer, which is, Let me hold your coat, son. <laughs> and so he climbs up the tree, <laughs> and that's the hood of a jacket. And inside the hood of the jacket is a second cervical vertebra. And as God is my witness, bless him, he came down the tree and he said, do you think it belongs to that? Yeah. And I said, well, it's a very good question and, and we'll check whether it, it already has one or there's one missing. And then he sealed his fate. He sealed his fate that I'm sure, bless him, he is somewhere directing traffic in an outer Hebrides island. He said, do you think it's murder? And I said, well, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I I think it's unlikely that a murderer would have climbed up the tree with a body to suspend it. I think it's more likely to be suicide. But, you know, let's think about it. And what do we have? So what we have is we have a skull and there are the trainers. So there's the lower parts of the leg, there's the thigh bones, there's the pelvis, there's the lower part of the spine, there's the ribs, And the rest of the body is underneath that. That's a British telecom jacket. So what you do is you take the least um, path of resistance and you go and you speak to BT and you say, have you got any missing engineers? Is there anyone on your workforce missing? No, there isn't. Blast. So the jacket may have been borrowed. They might have worked for BT in the past. They might have borrowed it. They might have bought it. They might have nicked it, anything. But BT is not going to help us on that. There's no circumstantial evidence So there isn't a wallet that's got a credit card. Most of us, when we die, will die where we expect to die. We will either die in a hospital, or we will die in our homes, or if we're unfortunate in a crash, it will be within our cars, or with some form of means of us being identified. There is nothing on this body that allows us to identify. There are no fingerprints. We do take a DNA sample, and the DNA sample does not match anything on the police DNA database. So until we can actually sew our name and our address into that double helix, it's not going to be any help to us if we don't have something to compare it with. We're okay that the head is down at this end, because we suspect that what's happened is that as the body's been hanging from that bow... And as the the tissues start to decompose and the neck starts to stretch with the weight of the body, the body falls in one direction, the head falls in the other direction. And usually you find that the first vertebra goes with the skull and it's the second one that gets left behind. So we're not concerned that there's really any evidence that suggests this is a criminal event. But you don't know until you investigate. So all we can do, standard old-fashioned anthropology, is to be able to look at the remains and say, how much of the identity can we recover? So we believe the individual was male. We believed he was gracile. There were no really big sites of muscle attachment. He wasn't built like a shot-putter. He was Caucasian, which doesn't mean he's white. Caucasian pertains to the Caucasus mountains and includes, in terms of ancestry, anybody north of Saharan Africa and Africa right out into the Indian subcontinent, but not out into Sri Lanka. So we believe that that's the ancestral origin of the individual, but of course it doesn't tell you anything about where they're born. He was somewhere between 20 and 25 years of age. He was somewhere between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 8 inches in height. And those are his biological characteristics. Those are the things that the police will put out that say he's a male. He's somewhere between 20 and 25 years of age. He's white and he's somewhere between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 8 And that does help, because it narrows down. It means that we're not looking for a woman, we're not looking for a child, we're not looking for somebody particularly tall or particularly short. But when you place that identity through the police computer, it comes up with 1,500 names. 1,500 names of missing people that would meet those four criteria. And you can't go and investigate those 1,500 names. We've got some information about his personal identity. We know he's had four teeth extracted, but you can't write to every dentist in the country and say, Have you ever had a patient that's had these four teeth extracted? Because they won't reply to you. We know he's had a fracture of a rib. We know that he's had damage to his right collarbone. And we know he's had damage to his right knee because it's in two parts, but it's a long time ago. So somewhere in this young man's past, he's met some trauma. And we were just being a little bit smart, because when you looked at his joint surfaces, they were really quite elongated, so we suspected he had a bit of joint laxity. But that doesn't help you until you get a name. So using that biological identity, what we were able to do was to reconstruct a face. Now, we're not trying to reconstruct a face that is going to be a perfect match for the missing person. All we're looking for is something that is just enough of a little hint that somebody will say, Do you know what that looks like? And it went out on Crime Watch, and there were, I think, about 20 phone calls within the first half an hour, all of them naming the same individual, and one of them was his mother. So she'd sat down to watch Crime Watch, and she thought, That looks like Jake. And that's all you need, because now we have a possible name. You send two police officers down to the house, one police officer sits with dad. One police officer goes into the kitchen with mum to make tea. When you're in the kitchen with mum, you will ask her really the most personal of questions. Are you the biological mother? Because if she's, if she's not the biological mother, we can't run her DNA. And then you will ask, is he the biological father? One out of every six children in the UK do not live with their biological father, whether they know that or not. If she is mum then we will take a DNA sample from mum and we will take a DNA sample from dad because we don't want him to feel left out. (laughs) But we will never run dad's DNA because if we had run dad's DNA, we have to disclose it. And the last thing you want to do to a family is to open up any other form of distress if you're going to announce that this is their son. So mum's DNA is usually enough. What we do is we run the DNA sample and we get confirmation that it is Jake. And what we know about Jake was that he was male, he was slim, he was white, he was 22 years of age, and he was five foot seven. That information was available from his bones. And in being able to use that information to inform how we constructed a skull, if we'd constructed a skull as a woman, if we constructed a skull as an elderly man, the chances of us getting to his identity would have been slim. We know that he had had his four teeth extracted because now we could go to his dentist and we could look at the records. And we also know they'd got a bit of a kicking in a bar one night and ended up in hospital with several broken ribs, a broken collarbone and a broken kneecap. So the information was there and now we can use it to confirm his identity. And Jake's party trick was he used to be able to bend his hand back to be able to touch his forearm because he was double jointed. But what was the absolute clincher for his identity was being able to get to his maternal DNA match. But all the other information about him was in there for us to find and to tease out and to try and reconstruct what his story might have been. I'd like to take you into, I could take you into any part of the human body and start to look at identification because we don't have the luxury of knowing which body part is going to come to us at any time for identification. But I like hands. I like hands better than I like faces. Faces and hands are the things that we interact with the entire world, and they're there for all of us to see. And they're so personal to us. I guarantee if you look at your hands, you'll see your mum's hands there or your dad's hands, or your great-aunt Gertrude's hands. My mother had the most delicate hands. My father had shovels. And I got my father's hands. I didn't get my mother's. But I love the fact that every day I look at my hands, what it makes me do is remember my father. And if you look at your hands, you'll see somebody's in your hands, whoever it is. And I can see in my daughter's, the different grandmothers' hands that, that are involved with them. They're very personal, and they're very identifiable. When you look at Albrecht Drurer, when he he has the most amazing hands that he draws, I can look now at the paintings and tell you whether he was drawing his own hands or his brother's hands, because his brother's hands are very different to his own. So there is a huge amount of information in there, and you wonder if it's something that we can capture. When you think about the enormity of the anatomy that exists within those little things hanging out the bottom of your sleeves, in terms of the number of bones and the number of joints and the number of muscles and the number of nerves and the number of blood vessels, there's a tremendous amount of our developmental memory placed within our hands. And they form very, very early on. And parts of them don't change So when you look at the hand as it's developing, and this one is at 48 days, this one at 51, and this at 63. By 63 days, when that baby's waving to mum from the ultrasound, we've got bones forming. We've got all the nerves and all the blood vessels down into every part of the hand that we need. And the patterns that we're going to see in the hand are set then. And some of them are not going to change. And that's incredibly powerful when you think that actually, in utero, this is not being laid down by the baby. It's being laid down by the mother. Because every single cell is formed through the nutrients that the mother ingests. Every single cell and its components is coming in from what you eat. So for example, when you look at the otic capsule, which is the bit in the the, um, inner ear that surrounds the area of hearing and balance, the bone that's in there doesn't remodel. So you're born with that bit of bone, exactly the same size as you're going to have right the way throughout your adult life. And that bone was laid down from the nutrients that your mother was eating when she was pregnant with you. Talk about your mother being inside your head for the rest of your life. She literally is. So that when you die, that little bit of your mother dies with you at the same time. Isn't that a perfect circle? At this point, this is mum that's laying down all of these cells. And when you look at the hand... We know it changes over time. We can identify which are the young hands, which are the old hands. And we're only too well aware of the changes. So when I'm speaking to medical students and I say to them, right, what I want you to do, and you can do it if you, if you feel brave, is catch a little bit of skin and hold it up and then let it go and see how long it takes for it to disappear. Okay, ready? Ready? Oh, it's still not there. And at this point, everybody who's young, who's done it, is going, I don't know what she's talking about, mine's disappeared. (laughs) So we know that the skin's going to change. We know that the bones will change, we know that the cartilage will change. We have to be able to build in that concept of change that we talked about before. But we can look at hands, and we can decide whether we think the hands that we're looking at are male or female. There is a dimorphism about them, but be careful, because it isn't at all reliable. There's a lot of information in your hands, and lots of things that happen to your hands over time, because they're the means by which we interact with our environment on a minute-by-minute basis. Whether we break the bones, whether we end up having to have scars because of injuries, or amputations, or burns, whether we have cancer or disease associated with those hands. So that there is a a surname in the Spanish telephone directory called size desmos, which means six fingers, because there is a genetic predisposition towards polydactyly. So that when we're involved in mass fatality events, for example, that might involve a significant number of individuals from that part of the world, we will not be surprised if we find extra fingers so we have to be able to be aware of the variation of the human body at all times. We're going to stray for hands now into a rather challenging area, so, so bear with me on this. A young girl alleged that her father came into her room at night and interfered with her. She told her mother, and her mother didn't believe her. So she left her Skype camera running at night. And if you leave your Skype camera running at night, it runs in infrared mode, so that you can see in the dark. And infrared light, when you shine it on human skin, interacts with the deoxygenated blood in our veins, so the veins stand out like black tram lines. When she left her camera running, this is what we saw at 4.39 in the morning, is an adult right hand and forearm coming into the picture, and the girl is lying horizontally on the bed, in her pyjamas. She was a brave young lady, and she went to the police, and she said, here's the evidence that what I said was happening, is happening. And the police took the video, and they went, how do we identify him? And it rattled around inside the Met for several months, and they came up to us and said, is there anything you can do? And we said, well, we've no idea because we've never done this before, but let's have a look because we can see vein patterns in the forearm. And if we look at your suspect and the veins are an entirely different pattern, it can't be him. So we can at least exclude him. But what we can't say with any confidence is whether, in fact, it is him. So we did that. We compared the superficial vein patterns in the father, and I've highlighted the vein pattern that you can see in the forearm of the offender. Now, If you're in any doubt, if you look at the back of your right hand, and you look at the vein pattern on the back of your right hand, I guarantee on the life of this lovely young gentleman in the front, <laughs> that the pattern of veins on your left hand will be entirely different. And if you're like me and your hands are a bit fat, look at the inside of your wrists, and the pattern of veins on your right will be different to your left. We are not a mirror image of ourselves. So we go into court, and the judge says, well, I've never heard this kind of evidence before, and I need to decide whether this is science or this is witchcraft. So we're going to have a voir dire, and we're going to send the jury out. And the judge decided that because the evidence was based on anatomical knowledge, and frankly, since Vesalius in the 1500s, We anatomists have understood variation, particularly in veins, superficial veins. And he decided, for the first time in the UK, he would allow the evidence to be heard. I gave my evidence, the jury went away, the jury came back, and they found Dad not guilty. The question for me is, who else was in her room at half past four in the morning, doing what she said was happening to her, that had an identical vein pattern to their father. And your instant reaction say, what did I do wrong? Where, where did the science go wrong here? And I asked our barrister, and the barrister said something to me that will stay with me for the rest of my life. She said, you did nothing wrong. Your evidence was absolutely, perfectly understandable. They just didn't believe the girl. She didn't break down and cry. So for a young teenage girl who had been so brave to stand up to her father... And to take him into court, for it to fail because she didn't cry, I felt was something that really worried me terribly. I suspect she was released back into the family home. I suspect she probably ran away. I suspect she was probably on the streets. I have no idea of knowing whether she's still alive or not. And at that day, I felt I had failed her, failed her to such a point that I was never going to fail something like that again. And we decided there is something in here. There is something in here because in terms of identifying an individual, we know the anatomy can do it. But what we clearly haven't got is the strength of the science behind us that is going to convince a jury over and above whether a young girl falls apart or not. So we decided we'd start doing the research. But before we could get there, the police, God bless them, being them, said, Well, See, this is how you did so well with that case. We've actually got another one. Could you have a look at this before you do the science? And we're going, no, 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 not really. We don't really want to. But Dean Lewis Hardy had been arrested coming into Heathrow Airport. And he was what's known as a sex tourist. And it's known that he was abusing children as young as two years of age. And he was taking photographs of doing that. And it's a really interesting crime in the respect of It's the one crime where the perpetrator photographs themselves committing the crime. If you're going to rob a bank, you don't film yourself robbing the bank. If you're going to murder someone, you don't film yourself doing it. But in this crime they do. They film themselves committing the crime. And that's important. If you hold indecent images, you will get a certain tariff from the courts. If you transmit those images, then your tariff, your sentencing goes up. But if you are the person committing the crime in those images, that's who the police need to get to because these are first-generation images and we need to take these people out of circulation and exposure to children and we need to be able to safeguard the children that they haven't yet got to. So Dean Lewis Hardy's hands were photographed, not a vein in sight. So we're thinking, well, the, the thing we've just done, we're not going to be able to do that with him, are we? But what we did find... You might have to take my word for it, but there is a four-point punctuated scar that sits on the left index finger here, which we can identify on the left index finger of, Mr. Uh, of the offender. And because he's a redhead, we can map his freckles. And the freckles are totally, totally different pattern on any two individuals because there's no genetic predisposition towards where the freckles occur, just that you have them. So we can match a scar, we can match freckles, and we can start to look at skin creases over the thumb. This is the offender's thumb, this is the suspect's left thumb, this is the suspect's right thumb, which I've mirror-imaged just so you can simply compare it. And if you doubt me, look at the pattern of skin over the knuckles of each of your fingers They will be different across every one of your fingers and across both of your hands. They formed when you were a fetus inside your mum, and they haven't really changed since then, unless you're a bare-knuckle boxer, in which case you've probably got a few more calluses than most of us would have. So we were able to go back to Dean Lewis Hardy. We couldn't exclude him, and we said, there are all these things that match, but we have no idea what that means in terms of statistics. And what happened was quite exceptional. He changed his plea. It was the first time that a paedophile had ever changed their plea to guilty, ...on the basis of an anatomical report that involved their hands. And then the Metropolitan Police did something that I thought was a a rather... I wasn't really terribly happy about it. They produced a documentary called How to Catch a Pedophile. It's a bit of a shooting yourself in the foot. And I thought, you know, we really don't want this kind of information out there. But they said it's out there already. The minute you give evidence in court, it is out there. And some other young people came forward after the documentary and said that he had abused them as well. And so he received an extra few years in prison as a result of it. So by this point we were absolutely convinced that science and anatomy had a part to play in the identification. And all of the features that you see in your hand can be classified according to different forms of etiology. And that's really important because it means that they're not necessarily linked. So they're independent factors. And if all of these independent factors match in the images and the hands of the suspect and the offender, then that's telling us that actually we've got a very good means of identification. So we decided we needed a database. And it just so happened that we had 550 police officers being trained in the university. So we stripped them down to their underwear, God bless them, and we photographed their hands, their forearms, their arms, their feet, their legs and their thighs. We didn't dare go anywhere else. We thought, let's start with limbs. That allowed us to look at both infrared light and invisible light, what the patterning of veins are. So the forearms on the top are the same individual. They're right and their left side. And on the feet at the bottom, that's my postdoc, Chris, so that we have his rather green-looking feet on one side, which is visible light. But when you look at it through infrared, you can see just how visible those veins become. So we can match what we can see in visible light to what we can see in infrared light. And these are my hands. So the top left one maybe allows you to see my vein pattern, possibly not, it's not that... that clear view. Well, can't do that. Um, And here they are. So these are the patterns. These are my vein patterns on the back. I'm a redhead. These are my freckles that you can see and identify. I'm a really bad anatomist. The white boxes are all my scars from the dissecting room. So you can see just how awful I am as, as, as an anatomist. You can see my knuckle creases. And you can see that lungeal, that little half moon that you've got at the base of your finger. I've got a defect in one of mine. Very, very identifiable for me. Here's Here's my knuckle crease. Here are my scars. Here are my freckles. There won't be a person in this room that will have those combinations of that pattern of skin crease, those scars, and those freckles. And when I create a cladogram for my own hand, then we've not been able to find any two hands yet, That are the same. And if you think for a moment that taking your wedding ring off convinces anybody that you're not married, here's the truth. We can identify whether you're a habitual wearer of jewelry, whether that be watches or it be rings. So there's a tremendous amount of information that sits in there. But what about identical twins? Well, here what we've got is the same individual, the right and left hand of the same individual. And here is their identical twin, the same hand for identical twins. You're not the same on your right and left side, and you are not the same as your identical twin. In fact, your identical twin is no more similar to you than any other person. And that's because those veins were laid down when you were a fetus inside your mum, and they haven't changed. And they're not about genetics, they're about the environment in which they form. So we start mapping them. We start mapping through node and edge analysis, saying what are the variation and the patterns that we can see? Where do these nodes and edges occur? And what we find is that we can identify that as you head down from that index finger down towards the base of your fifth finger, that's where most information is going to occur in terms of your vein patterns. So if all we see is a semi-prone hand, we'll get very little vein pattern. We really want those images that are going to allow us to see the back of the hand, and we're going to want to be able to trace them coming down through this area in particular, because that's where we see the highest peaks of those nodes and edges. And what we also know is that if the hand is in an optimal position and clenched, we're going to get more information about the vein pattern than if we have a hand that is not clenched and is in a semi-prone position. So we can start to say to the police, depending upon the position of the hand in that image, we can predict how much of the anatomy you're seeing or not seeing. And if we change the resolution of a camera, not surprisingly, but we have to show it in a courtroom, the greater the resolution of the image, the more likely you are to pick up the anatomical information. And that's really important. When we started doing this work, we found that the cameras were actually relatively poor quality. So if there is ever going to be at least one benefit to having iPhones and cameras with high resolution, it means actually that these offending images coming into us now are of much better quality than they were in the past And that allows us to make a much more certain identification. And then we tested whether people are any good at this. All this is, is like, do you remember that game you had as a child, Spot the Difference? That's what it is. It's a Spot the Difference and we're all good at it. And what this says to the courtroom is, all you have to do is produce the images in court and you let the jury decide whether it matches or not. Where it becomes important, where the probative value of this is in the courtroom, is the the features that you choose to identify. So the public may look at skin colour. You can't look at skin colour because there are so many tonal changes occur within a photograph. So we need to be there for the probative purposes to say, these are the features you need to choose, but you just need to put it in front of the jury, and they will actually be the ones who make the analysis. Let me finally take you through Jeremy O'Ketch, who's a Nigerian national a trainee pharmacist. And he was charged with the rape of a young child. And we'd not looked at dark skin before, so we didn't know how easy or difficult it would be. And as I've said to you, you can now do this, because you now know what you're looking for. You're the members of the jury that are looking at whether we have similarities or we have differences. There's a two-point punctuated scar sitting in the space between the index and the middle finger. There's a vein pattern, a superficial vein pattern that is mapped across the two. There is a clinical condition called melaninitia, which is where you get pigment that runs up through the nail, and it only happens on one hand and only in one finger, and it's found in both the suspect and the offender. And when you compare the skin creases over the thumb or any of the fingers, but certainly for this picture of the thumb, you can do the comparisons to decide are there similarities or are there differences. And when we look across the entirety of a hand, that we're seeing features that are formed when the individual was a baby or a fetus. We're seeing features that are formed as a result of accident through time. We're seeing features that are formed as a result of a clinical genetic condition. The result is that, again, after a no-comment plea right the way through, he changed his plea again to guilty, and he was given a 15-year sentence. And it was one of the most traumatic cases the Greater Manchester Police had dealt with because of the nature of the videos that they had to watch. And that was the point at which we said, there must be something we can do, that people don't have to watch these things all the time. We probably take on a case a week, and that's just the tip. Of an iceberg. About 82% of our cases that we take on result in a change of plea. For me that's a result. That means no other young teenage girl has got to go into court and give evidence against her father and not be believed because she didn't cry. The science allows that to happen. But we've worked for both the prosecution and for the defence because it is extremely important that if somebody is not guilty, then they are to be proved not guilty as well. You are innocent until you're proved guilty. So what are we going to do about it? Well, you all know that you can put your hand in and you can have bits of your hand scanned if you've gone through immigration, you've had your fingerprints done, and you've even got some scanners that will look at vein patterns. We want to be able to do that from images. Not from a live hand, but from images. And so we have a rather nice, large research grant. God bless Europe. In its, in its, in its throes, we have a, a European grant that's just come into us. God bless them. And what we will be looking at is developing a multimodal biometric. We will train computers to be able to abstract the anatomical information from the images. That will mean that we can run through thousands of images to get our algorithms as reliable as we possibly can. We know in part that it works because we have been able to train a computer to pick out what are vein patterns from quite poor quality photographs, to separate out what is a vein from a tendon and to be able to show that it is repeatable. And we'll do the same for each of those characteristics that you saw. You can see that the amount of anatomical variation that's in there The anatomy of your right hand is not a mirror image of your left. It's not identical to anybody else. The science shows that, and because we know that amount of variation, there's something that we can do about that. Is it possible? Is it possible that your hand is unique to you and that there is no other person that it could match? We won't know, because it will come back down to probability. And how much of that has formed at birth and how much of it is acquired, how much of it is change, and how much of it is inherent. And in terms of statistical probability, because we can't possibly go and photograph everybody's hands in the world, are we actually going to get to a position where we can do something that DNA can't do? DNA can't separate identical twins. But it may well be that, in fact, your hand will do that for you. We don't know how many indecent images of children, IOC, there are, on the dark web. But we know that there are thousands and thousands of sites that people can connect to. We know that Interpol has a database of millions and millions of these photographs. It's at such a level of epidemic of crime that the police can't, just can't arrest their way out of it. Imagine then that we've taken our algorithm and we can now set it onto the police databases. For the first time, we may be able to identify the perpetrator committing the crimes in Malaysia in 2004, who then moved to Germany in 2008, who then moved to the UK in 2012, because that's where those particular police forces were picking up these images. We've never been able to link international crime in this way before, and we're hoping that that's what our research will be able to do. There's some very sobering statistics about to come. One in every 20 children in the UK have been sexually abused. One in every 20. And if you look at how many people there are in this room, you know who you are, and there will be. One in every three children are sexually abused by an adult, but didn't tell anyone. So a third of our children need to go into that pot. Over 90% of children sexually abused by someone that they know. It's not the stranger, it's the people that we know. And disabled children are more than three times more likely to be abused. So we see it in different parts of the country and we see it in different sectors. It's something the police can't prosecute their way out of. They they can't arrest their way out of it. They need the assistance from science. And over 47,000 cases recorded in the UK in a year it is an absolute and utter epidemic of crime and thank you for your attention
2: thank, thank you so much sue for it's really wonderful that you've thank shared you. with us your work this evening although it's been very thought-provoking challenging and challenging yeah, yeah. So thank you so i just want to throw out the opportunity to ask questions so would anyone like to ask a question
3: hello Uh, Thank you for your talk. It was wonderful. I learnt so much. um, Namely that redheads ought not to commit crimes because they have some very discerning features. Um, You you used the phrase um, limits of science at one point and I was mulling that over because as you were talking it seemed to me science feels limitless in this domain. You're finding out so much and doing such extraordinary work. But when you were talking about the barley bomb and the, the, the victims who are misidentified, I thought that there is perhaps a limit of science insofar as some people don't want to be persuaded of the scientific data that you're unearthing. And there are all sorts of reasons why you might be resistance, resistant to that information. I could imagine Jake's mother being resistant to it or the, the, the mother of the, the young woman you talked about. In those circumstances, what do you do when the, the science isn't enough to persuade someone?
1: Um, I can give you an example of a MA. May. So, we had uh, a young man whose microlite crashed off the east coast of Scotland, and this was in the days before DNA. And his body had been in the water for a couple of weeks. So when the body was washed on shore, um, it wasn't in a very good condition. Um, he was headless, he was handless, he was footless because the body had started to, to decompose. And we were asked to say, was there anything we could use to identify him? So he was male. We could tell his height. We could tell his, his, his um, ancestral origin. And it came down to a very simple thing that we asked um, his girlfriend and his mother to describe if he had any birthmarks or anatomical marks. And his mother said, my son was perfect. My son had no blemish. And his girlfriend said, he's got a birthmark underneath his left nipple. So that's very useful. So we have a look underneath his left nipple and we find a birthmark. So the girlfriend knew his anatomy more intimately than did his mother. But the result was, whilst the girlfriend accepted it was him, The mother never did. She never, ever accepted that it was him. Nowadays, we'd have more more substantial evidence to be able to support it, obviously, but then we couldn't. But the Bali bombing is the same. So that you will have people who who will go out to that part of the world after a disaster, desperate to find somebody to bring home, but others who are equally desperate not to find who they're looking for. And it becomes such a personal thing that all you can do is lay the information to them as you have it at the time. If it changes, you go back. But at the moment, you can say, to the best of our ability, we believe it is or is not your loved one. And it comes down to conversation, and it comes down to trust, and it comes down to acceptance. Because whilst we can 100% exclude identity... We cannot 100% confirm it. So if you imagine that there were several children from a family lost, in terms of skeletal remains, and we had it within Kosovo, then all the DNA would tell you is those people belong to that family. But it wouldn't tell you necessarily which of the members of the family it was, unless you had personal DNA for them, which in those cases we didn't. So it is about trying to be honest, always trying to be honest, and always trying to give as much information as you can, but never going too far. And it just does come down to personal acceptance.
4: Dim Su, so thank you very much for a deeply moving lecture. It's it's an absolute honour to be with you in, in one room, and I've, I've hoped for that since I read that article in Wired about your work in catching pedophiles <laughs> a year or two ago. And I did read about the case of a dismissed teenager case, and it upset me greatly, but I also read about some monsters that you helped convict and ever since then I was thinking as to whether technology can assist and sort of automate that so it's very uplifting that you thought of it as well and um, that you're developing something so I have two questions. Is the end goal of the technology you're working to develop to automate the process of identification so that it can be scaled because you're just one person and your team is small as I read and I can't even begin to imagine the kind of trauma that on any person up to and including police officers seeing the images of an abused two-year-old must inflict. I mean, that's beyond my comprehension. I think everyone else's. So my first question is, is the end game to make it really automatic so that you can really unleash it on all these millions of images? And the second one, it's sort of maybe semi-opportunistic, hopefully from your perspective, because, you know the technology is developing greatly, and we're talking ultimately about pattern recognition. So this is where the modern artificial intelligence technologies are getting really, really good. And frankly, I think that if you approach one of the technology giants, they would be willing and helpful because there's no better use for this technology ever than catching child molesters. So have you considered that?
1: So, On a number of fronts. So first of all, the technology for us is about getting to the point that that we can process many more cases than we can currently do. Um, But it is making sure that it's scientifically robust. So for us, it's about doing the research first before we're ready to implement it. And with large companies, best in the world, then often the drive may well be commercial, rather than necessarily being societal. So we want to make sure the science is right before we do it. What the technology will also do is help those officers, and I don't know how they do it, but that is their job, is to sit and look at those images day in and day out. And there is a real toll and a price to pay for them doing it. We do it on an odd occasion, they do it all day and every day. And I think in some ways they are the modern sin eaters. They're they're eating the sins of other people so they don't have to do it. It's a really horrendous job. So yes, we want to be able to to safeguard them, but we want to be able to make sure that the technology is out there to get to those cases that we just simply can't at the moment. But one of the things I did in the Wired Live that you talked about was I, I put out a challenge to industry that said there must be a way in which you can recognise in a photograph whether the individual is clothed or unclothed, an adult or a child. There must be a way in terms of technology that you can stop these images, maybe not from being taken, but certainly from being transferred. And I can't believe that that technology won't get so smart that we can get to a point where we can actually start to remove these. But much of them are on the dark web, and so it's about being able to get into that sort of area as well. And, and, you know, with, I can't really be more honest about it. It is a crime that has probably existed since man first began. And I don't think it's a crime that we will ever lose. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying to cut off as many heads of the hydra as we possibly can. But we may not kill the beast.
2: And so technology unquestionably has its role to play right the way across the board. So, so I was thinking about um, like an evolutionary arms race, if you like, and uh, how your technologies can um, uh, help convict on the, the, the images that are already out there. But as kind of pedophiles get more clever and more um, used to knowing that this is out there to convict them, won't they just stop hiding their hands or wearing gloves? Or I mean, it's going to be a point where they where technology won't? It's a very good question, it's one that's asked of us frequently,
1: is that when when you convey this information aren't you telling people how not to do something? And we've seen no evidence of a reduction in the cases that come to us, we've seen no evidence of anybody wearing gloves and you have to bear in mind the crime is a tactile crime and therefore wearing gloves is a barrier towards the tactile crime. Most people don't believe they're going to be caught because it's on their own phones, it's on their own computers, and so there is an element of of not believing that you're actually vulnerable as somebody who's going to be found guilty of the crime. So we all know that DNA survives, but to be honest, most criminals still don't think about it, which is why we still capture them. So even though the technology gets out there, fortunately, most criminals are not very smart.
4: Thank you. About 40 years ago, I had my palm read and uh, i was told i wasn't going to live all that long you know not uh, hugely and i wasn't going to be rich and all that sort of stuff and uh, i thought oh that's kind of interesting and i photographed my palms and i saw them just the other day and they did appear to have changed a bit but not significantly
1: Mm.
4: is that what you would expect
1: yes so um the the palm creases form um as a result of the positioning of bones. So when the joints are formed in the individual um, areas of the hand, these skin creases are just allowing movement. And once that skin crease is formed, it, it really doesn't change very much. And what will happen is that if, if you're a, a bricklayer, for example, or you're someone who who has a lot of exposure to the outside world, often you find that sometimes they can get worn away so that fingerprints and and palm lines can actually wear away with age. And it's quite difficult sometimes to get fingerprints from elderly individuals for that reason. So environment will will affect it, but the inherent pattern doesn't change very much. Um, But
4: if I was looking at it correctly, my lifeline did seem to have increased.
1: (laughs) There you go. I I don't want to ask about your love life either. (laughs)
2: Excellent. you were talk- when you were talking about Jake,
1: one of the basic things that you could tell from the skeleton was that he was Caucasian. I just wondered how. So, um, we're not very good at determining ancestral origin from human remains, but the area that is, is most, has most information for us is in the skull, and it's mainly associated with the teeth and with the palate. So, for example, Caucasian tend to have not a very wide palate, Um, the teeth tend to be a bit more crowded and tend to be a bit more small. When you look to individuals whose um, ancestral origin is is sub-Saharan Africa, you tend to have a much wider palate, you tend to have larger teeth, and the the teeth actually fit within the palate. If you go into um, groups, for example, that are further east, you get a particular shape sometimes of the central incisors. So it's mainly about changes associated with, with teeth jaws and face rather than necessarily about skull. And you, know, you can see that when you look at individuals in the very widest sense of an ancestral origin, you can see characteristics within the face that are typical of those groups. But what it doesn't tell you is where somebody is born but it does mean that it was unlikely that he was going to have an ancestry that was going to be sub-Saharan Africa or was going to be from the Far East or was going to be in in the fourth group, which is the the, um, indigenous populations in the South Pacific. So those are the four groups that you can, to some extent, separate out, but not with any degree of certainty. So we have to be very careful when we give that information to the police that they say, well, what do you mean by Caucasian? And by Caucasian, we may well mean Indian subcontinent as well. Um, And it can be quite challenging for them because they want to be able to put out a particular descriptor. And what they really want to know from us is, is the person Polish or is the person, you know, and you go, we can't do that. We're good, but we're not that good. So it's one of the most difficult ones.
0: Good evening. evening. Um, When you were doing your sort of summary of what things you did, You mentioned the word jigsaw puzzle, uh, and it struck me that jigsaw puzzle, there's two things. One, you know the pieces go in the puzzle, and two, you've got a picture. But in your case, you don't even know if all the pieces go together. How do you go about sorting it out?
1: So, you have an assumption, um, certainly in in the case that we saw there, um, you have an assumption that it is probably from the one individual, it's difficult when you've got a mass fatality event. But if you, if you know, um, if you're looking at a skull, for example, that has mass fracturing, somebody's um, taken a hammer to it, so you've got all the pieces and you're trying to put them back together again, or you have um, ballistic damage associated with it, um, you're, you're pretty sure that it's one person. And you're pretty sure you know what a skull looks like, you just don't know quite what this one looks like but an orbital margin looks like an orbital margin, and a zygomatic bone looks like a zygomatic bone. And it is about recognising the little patterns that are in the little pieces. So we, we had a murder in just north of Glasgow, and a fragment of bone was found in the filter of the washing machine, um, because it had been on the perpetrator's jumper. And it was about four millimetres long and about two millimetres wide. And anatomically, it can only have come from one area, which was, which was the greater wing of the sphenoid, because the clues were there in the picture. So, so we do need to know what every tiny little bit looks like, and we need to be able to identify them. We need to start gluing them together, um, but you don't ever glue it until you know it's a fit. Um, and once you've got a fit, it's about then trying to do a three-dimensional jigsaw, not a two-dimensional jigsaw. And it's, it's absolutely absorbing. It really is absorbing and very, very frustrating and I can remember doing a case of of, uh, a young man whose, whose skull was very badly fractured and we couldn't get any of the pieces to fit together and the police were watching us and we could feel the sweat and we could feel the frustration and then suddenly when you got one bit to fit, all the other bits would fit around it and it is just persistence. It does come eventually if you've spent enough time. The best anthropologists are the old anthropologists.
2: I just finally just wanted to say that our strategy is based on encouraging people to think more deeply about science and its place in our lives. And the two things are more deeply and place of science in our lives. And I I really think that Sue's lecture this evening has been a real embodiment of that. So thank you so much, Sue, for coming here and sharing. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review, and remember, you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. If you want more, we've got loads of excellent talks coming up on a whole range of science topics. Go to rigb.org to book your tickets.